You're awesome. Your plan is perfect. And we have gathered together this morning, just like you call us to, to worship you, to fellowship with one another, to hear your word, to get equipped, to be prepared, to live this life that you have called us to live that will bring you glory. So please, come and speak to us now from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn to Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 9 through 17, page 541 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And uh, we're going through Zechariah verse by verse. And here we are at the Messianic King. Okay? Now, I want to ask you a question. What is the center of your life? What is the most important thing in your life? What causes you, as our passage says, to rejoice greatly and shout in triumph? If it is anything else but Jesus, the Messianic King, you will never be content because you were made for him. At Harvest, we want to equip you to make disciples who will advance the kingdom of God together as we focus on the king. We want to do this. We want to help you as you make Jesus the center of your life. So everything we do I want to encourage you, when we gather together, the, the time that we sing songs to the Lord, sing those songs to the Lord because it's all about him. And as you focus on Jesus, though, I want to encourage you to be open to being filled with the Holy Spirit where you have contact with the King. And when we have prayers. In fact, in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it speaks of these things that are the, really the focus of the church service. It speaks of the prayers. Most translations just say prayer, devoted to prayer. But in the Greek, it is the prayers. We intentionally are crying out to the Lord. Our elders, as they lead us together, as we are seeking the Lord together, they are focusing on Jesus, and they are seeking the Lord in our behalf, and we're doing that together. When we're praying together, I want to encourage you to be open to being filled with the Holy Spirit and to experience contact with the King. When we have our time of fellowship, and fellowship is very important in the scriptures. It says devoted to the fellowship as well. It's why we have that coffee break in between, okay? We want to encourage fellowship, but I'll tell you what, where you get the fellowship the most is from the life groups. As you gather together in those smaller groups in the different homes or at the church, and as you are seeking the Lord together, I want to encourage you, and even during this fellowship time that we have at the church here, I want to encourage you to be open to being filled with the Holy Spirit 
and experiencing contact with the king. And when the word is preached, we take this very seriously. This is God's word. It's why we go through books of the Bible verse by verse because I can tell you nice stories, but what's going to change your life is God's word, not my nice stories. And so when we go through the word and as we're digging into God's word, I want to encourage you to be open to being filled with the Holy Spirit and to come into contact with the King. Okay? Let's read our passage. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your King is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill that bow with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece. I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will fly like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and advance with the southern storms. The Lord of armies will defend them. They will consume and conquer with sling stones. They will drink and be rowdy as if with wine. They will be as full as the sprinkling basin like those at the corners of the altar. The Lord, their God, will save them on that day as the flock of his people. For they are like jewels in a crown sparkling over his land. How lovely and beautiful. Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Now here we see King Jesus is at the center. And because we've, as we've been looking at the book of Zechariah, specifically focusing on this idea of revival, because the book of Zechariah is describing a revival the people experienced when they came back home from exile, and Zechariah and Haggai led them into this revival, but also because it speaks of a great end-time revival, and so there are things we can learn from this book about revival. And I want to say this, King Jesus is at the center of revival. It's all about him. And so to fully experience revival... We need to know the king. Experience his promise of deliverance and embrace him as divine warrior. Those three parts come from this passage. So let's look at them. The first one, to know the king. In verses 9 and 10, we see Messiah presented to Israel. Now, you probably recognize verse 9, clearly referring to the triumphal entry, right? Okay, but then verse 10 seems to indicate that he conquers the world. 
So as you're reading 9 and 10, from a New Testament perspective, it makes sense to us because as we read it, we realize he comes twice, right? Messiah comes twice. First, he comes as suffering servant to die on the cross for our sins. So he comes humbly riding on a donkey. But then second, his second coming, he comes, he wipes out all evil, and he brings peace to this planet and reigns for a thousand years in Jerusalem. So we recognize from a New Testament's perspective that he comes twice. Now what's fascinating is back in the old days, in the ancient times, the Jewish people wrestled with these passages. They didn't know how to deal with them because at one point it looks like he's humble. It looks like he's suffering servant like Isaiah 53, but then he also looks like a conquering king. How do we deal with this? I actually have a commentary that compiles. This is a Jewish commentary. It's not a Christian commentary, okay? They compile the ancient rabbis and how they dealt with Zechariah. Okay, one of the things they say, and so they're now they're talking about the Talmud in the Talmud. The Talmud notes the difference between the account given here of the coming of the Messiah and that given in Daniel 7.13, because in Daniel he comes as that, you know, riding on the clouds, conquering king, okay? Uh, in Daniel it is written, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man came. Well, Zechariah prophesies here that the Messiah will appear as a humble person, riding a donkey. The Talmud explains that if Israel is worthy, the Messiah will come on the clouds of heaven. But if Israel is unworthy, the Messiah will come as a humble person. See how they dealt with it? They said, well, he, he must come as one or the other. You can't come as both. It doesn't make any sense. So see how they're wrestling with it. Another one in the Qumran community, they suggested there must be two messiahs. There must be a, a messiah ben Joseph who comes as suffering servant and a messiah ben Judah who comes as conquering king. That's, that, that's how they dealt with it. But notice they're all wrestling because how do we understand this? Even in our own passage, he comes as humble, riding on a donkey, but then he comes conquering king, dominion extending from sea to sea. Well, we know, once again, from the New Testament perspective, it's because he comes twice, right? But when you look at it, you think, okay, why in the Old Testament? Why the secrecy? Why so clandestine? Why not just say he comes first as suffering servant to die on the cross for your sins, and then second, he's going to come and wipe out all evil? Why not just say that? You ever thought of that? There is a very good reason why he didn't do it. And it was because God fooled Satan. Remember, there is a great battle going on between God and Satan, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Now, it really is no battle. God is the creator of the universe, and Satan is just a created being. So we know how it all ends, right? Okay, but there is this battle. And if God, and we know this from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, by the way, if God would have made it real clear before Jesus came, then Satan certainly would not have killed Jesus, right? I mean, if he knew, oh, if I kill Jesus, that means everybody's going to be, be able to have their sins forgiven. Duh, I'm not going to kill that guy, right? Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. I guess I don't have that up there, sorry. 
None of the rulers of this age, now that's a phrase Paul uses in several places to refer the, to the demonic realm. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So he wrote his book in such a way that the enemy couldn't figure out what was going on until after the fact. But once we look at it from the New Testament perspective, we go, wow, great idea, God, Right? And so we see this. Messiah comes twice. First, verse 9, is the triumphal entry. Very, very clearly. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here we see the triumphal entry. All four Gospels speak of this event, but I want us to look at Luke 19. I like Luke's rendition because of how it ends. So look at Luke 19, verse 28. They're all good, by the way, because it's in the Bible. Luke 19, verse 28. He says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them as they were untying the young donkey. Its owners said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Apparently that worked. (laughs) Then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading the clothes on the, ro- on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. You see what's going on here? They're seeing Jesus come riding on the donkey. All of the Jewish people at that point would have absolutely remembered Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. They knew their Bibles. They would have seen it and said, it's the king. And so they declare him, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they recognize also verse 10, he's going to bring peace, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. So they're praising him. Now, tragically, we see within the end of the week, they end up crying out for him to be crucified. But here we see this triumphal entry, clearly a a moment of humbleness by Jesus. And then it finishes, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Ha! In other words, if we won't praise him, (laughs) he's going to get praise, all right? So we might as well be the praisers, don't you think? Let's praise him. That's what we see when we think of Jesus, okay? Here we see this. This is the proper response when you, when you think of and experience Jesus. So I want to ask you a question. Does your heart leap when you think of Jesus or when you hear his name, Jesus? Does that stir you from deep within to say, oh, I love him? 
That's God's plan. It's because he must be the center of our life. And that's what we're seeing here where we see this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. It's okay to praise him even during the service. Okay. It says that he is righteous, he has salvation, and he is humble. Jesus is righteous. He was perfect when we were not, so therefore able to be the proper substitute for our sin. He brings salvation through his death on the cross, shedding his blood so that our sins could be forgiven if we repent of our sins and place our faith in him. And he is humble, unlike Alexander the Great, If you remember last week in our passage, we saw in verses one through eight that it was a reference to Alexander the Great, that he, God, used him preliminarily, but we also know from history that after Alexander the Great, the Greeks began to persecute the Jewish people, okay? Now, that took place much later after Zechariah wrote, but obviously prophesying he knew what was going to come here. And so we see, unlike Alexander the Great, this would take place. Uh, he, would, he would be humble, Alexander the Great, and I'll talk about that in a, a little bit more later. But look at Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Here we see a similar rendition of Messiah and how he would have this, this humbleness about him, not arrogance, Isaiah 42, speaking of the servant, this is one of the four servant songs, which is our references to the Messiah. He says, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. So he comes. Messiah is going to bring justice. It will take time. And we know from the two comings of Christ, the first coming, he brings the opportunity and the ability for us to be forgiven of our sins so that we are not condemned when the king comes back. So there's justice by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. But in the end, when he comes back, he's going to bring full justice. So he first comes to bring forgiveness, and then at the end he comes to bring judgment and to wipe out all evil. But he will bring justice. But see the the humble nature of him. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. The gentle nature of Jesus is obvious, especially in his first coming. But look at Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Here, speaking of, I believe, both comings of Christ, he declares the king is coming. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, you gates, rise up, ancient doors, then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, you gates, rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. And so they, when they recognize, here comes the king, okay? Second coming when he comes. Here comes the king. Lift up your head. You don't have anything to worry about. He is coming, the king of glory. But notice here in this passage, it says the king is the Lord himself. God, but obviously from a New Testament perspective, we know because Jesus is God. And so we see this coming of the Lord, this first coming we see in the triumphal entry, verse 9, but then in verse 10, we see the millennial reign where it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth, everywhere, the whole earth. He cuts off, we see the the chariot, the horse, and the bow. Those were the three major parts of warfare in ancient civilization. He's going to cut them all off because there will be total peace when Jesus Christ returns. This is what we ultimately long for, isn't it? Total peace. It will not come completely until Jesus returns. So we long for that day. But now let's put these two together, verses 9 and 10. You see, in revival, we meet the king in personal encounters and see him move mightily in the life of the church. And we serve him with utter abandon, longing for his return. So we're praying, oh God, come, that we might see you, that we might, through the Holy Spirit, experience your presence so that we're strengthened and we see these incredible exploits of our God. So our hope that includes tastes and glimpses of God himself sustains us until he comes again. Does that make sense? So here we see We have to know the king, though. We have to come and experience his presence through the Holy Spirit, and then he will bring deliverance. Verses 11 and 12, we see Messiah promised to Israel, specifically a promise of deliverance. And I want to say this, God keeps his promises, right? Look at the promise of deliverance. Verse 11, it says, As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. I like that, double. Sounds good, doesn't it? Okay. Here we see the promise of deliverance, but the deliverance is based on the blood of the covenant. Because of the blood of your covenant. Now, in in Zechariah's day, he is referring to the Mosaic Covenant where God provided for them through the substitutionary atonement that if they sinned and truly repented and and trusted in God's provision, that the animal would die in their place and they would not have to pay the penalty for their sin. Okay, So it was the substitutionary atonement. Now we know from the book of Hebrews that that simply pointed to the ultimate 
sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That his death, because he was the perfect lamb who could take away the sins of the world, that we believe when we put our trust in him, when we repent of our sins and place our faith in him, the blood of your covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ, brings about complete forgiveness of sins. Okay, So we see this, and by the way, this very phrase, blood of your covenant, is used in Mark 14, 24, in reference to the Lord's Supper, as a picture of Jesus shedding his blood for our sins. So we see this idea is deliverance comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you have to surrender to Jesus as your king. He's the king. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means he's your Lord. He's your king. He's the boss. You're not, okay? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So we surrender. So this is not a promise to everybody. We must surrender to the king. But he wants everyone to surrender. He's come now to offer salvation. And so we have this beautiful gift of grace that also brings deliverance. Not only does it bring forgiveness of sin, it also brings deliverance. Deliverance from the bondages that the enemy holds over you. This passage goes on and it speaks of uh, releasing the prisoners from the waterless cistern. Deliverance includes protection and freedom. Freedom as prisoners that they were once prisoners, but protection returned to a stronghold. You prisoners who have hope today, I declare that I will restore double to you. The waterless cistern or waterless pit would have reminded them, first of all, of Joseph. Joseph, who was thrown into the waterless pit to die, he was then sold into slavery, but ultimately he was rescued, wasn't he? They would have also remembered, as I mentioned last week, Jeremiah, who was thrown into that waterless pit and he sank into the mud. They would have recognized, oh yeah, he eventually was rescued as well. Here is his promise to those who are prisoners. This is a metaphor. This waterless pit is a metaphor for prison. And they are prisoners, but he sets them free. Now here's the question. What prison can Jesus set you free from? By the blood of Jesus Christ, not your own effort, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, what prison can he set you free from? Are you addicted to drugs or alcohol? Are you a prisoner of your own anger or worry or pornography or whatever it is? Jesus can set you free. He can break that stronghold like that because of not your effort, but because of the blood of Jesus. If you surrender to him as king, he's the center of your life, he will take those shackles and knock them off. It's what he does because of the blood of Jesus Christ, delivers us. Wouldn't it be nice to be free? (laughs) He wants you to be. 
And he keeps his promises. That's what he says, okay? So Messiah and his promise. So we, to fully experience revival, we need to know the king and have deep experiential contact with the king. We need to experience his promise of deliverance and then embrace him as divine warrior. Verses 13 through 17, Messiah is the divine warrior. Now, most people today don't think of God as a warrior, do they? They think of him as an old grandpa in the sky, right? They are in for a rude awakening. He comes as conquering divine warrior. We see in verse 13, he brings up Greece. For I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill that bow with Ephraim. I will rouse your son's Zion against your son's Greece. I will make you like a warrior's sword. And you think, okay, well, what, what is it with Greece? As I said, after Alexander the Great, the Greeks would then come and subjugate the people of Israel. So there was a bondage, and this is actually predicting that this would take place, but that they would be set free. Let me read from David uh, Levy's commentary on this. He says, Many scholars say the word Greece refers to the terrible period of Grecian persecution under Antiochus IV. Antiochus desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. He also tortured Jewish people and forbade them to practice their religion. An Israelite family led by Mattathias revolted against Antiochus's domination. In a three-year conflict with Antiochus, Mattathias's son, Judah, liberated Jerusalem, cleansed the temple from heathen desecration, and reestablished Jewish worship. That took place between 168 and 165 B.C. That is a historical fact. The family became known as the Maccabees from the Hebrew word for hammer. The Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, Feast of Dedication, was established to commemorate this event. So, He's predicting this. He's saying they will be delivered. But it's also because of the context of the passage, it's clear that Greece simply represents all of the enemies of God's people and that ultimately there is going to be a rescue of God's people where he will deliver them, even though they are not strong enough. Uh, This speaks of the ultimate defeat though they are not strong enough. When it says there, I will bend Judah as my bow and fill the bow with Ephraim, it has to be God doing it, okay? On our own, we cannot defeat the enemy, can we? He is too powerful for us. But we see here that God comes through. Elizabeth had three dreams the same night, and they were... Uh, all basically the same dream, and it was kind of an interesting dream, okay? She saw she was being attacked by a group of thugs who had guns and, uh, and, and all kinds of things that they clearly could have and should have beaten her, right? All she had was a stool. So then she, she says in the dream, she takes the stool and hits the one guy who had a gun, and somehow it jars the gun out of his hand, and it flies up, and it lands into another guy's hand, and so he's got the gun at her, and he says, 
She said, you know, she should have been shot. She should have been dead. But then somehow she was able to take the stool again and hit him. And, and she said that at the end, it was almost like Laurel and Hardy or, or you know, the Three Stooges, Curly, Moe, and Larry. You know, they were, they were just, you know. And somehow she defeated them with guns with a stool, okay? Now, what was really cool about this, okay, the next day, Sunday, after church, we go to eat uh, out to eat with Phil and Pam. And Pam brought a gift to Elizabeth, not even knowing anything about the, the dream. And it was a stool <laughs> with a sheep on it. A stool with a sheep on it. I mean, that, doesn't that sound like God? Because I think God was telling us, you can't do this in your own strength. You cannot defeat the enemy in your own power. But God is on your side. He will deliver you. That's our promise. Wherever we're at, you know how weak you are. But if God is for you, who can be against you? And he even gives dreams like this. I just think that's cool. We have a great God. Okay. All right. So at any rate, we see here this deliverance with God on our side. Verses 14 and 15, God himself will come down and bring victory. Look what it says. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will fly like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet in advance with the southern storms. Now notice here, this is the only passage in the Bible where God himself blows the shofar. But he blows the sound of the trumpet. The Lord of armies will defend them, and they will consume and conquer with sling stones. They will drink and be rowdy as if with wine. They will be as full uh, as the sprinkling basin like those at the corners of the altar. These are mentionings of things going on in the temple and so forth. So the Lord will conquer for us. God himself will come down to bring this victory. God shows up. It reminded me of a passage in Isaiah. I want you to turn to Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. I love this passage. Isaiah 64 We see God showing up. <laughs> he says, Isaiah 64, 1, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that nations will tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works that we did not expect, you who came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. He's, this is a prayer. Lord, come down. Lord, do it again. I want to see you make the mountains quake. I want to see you bring the deliverance. We need you even now to come down again and blow the shofar and defeat the enemies in our midst, oh God. You see, we see this, and we do know that this ultimately takes place in the book of Revelation, according to Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes down on the horse. By the way, he came first on the donkey, Humbly, 
When he comes again, it is on the conquering horse where he does wipe out the evil one, where he takes Satan and casts him into the abyss and he takes the Antichrist and puts him right into hell. He destroys the enemy. God himself shows up. Jesus, by the way, is no wimp. He is gentle and humble. And he's awesome and glorious. He is our king. Our king. Lift up, O you gates. The king of glory will come in. Verses 16 and 17, we see that Messiah values and provides for his people. It's how it finishes. The Lord their God will save them on that day. That phrase, on that day, uh, has an eschatological focus in the Old Testament. Genesis 49.1 and many other passages refer it. So he's clearly referring to the end of time. On that day, as the flock of his people, for they are like jewels in a crown sparkling over his land. You see, this is what Jesus thinks about you. This is his view of you if you're one of his people, one of his kids, if you've surrendered to the king. This is what he thinks about you. This is how valuable you are to him. Do you know how you determine how much value something, someone places on something. It's very, very simple. Very simple. It's how much they're willing to pay for it, right? That's how much, if someone values something, they value it to the amount that they're willing to pay for it, right? Not hard. It's not rocket science economics, is it? Okay. How much was he willing to pay God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We sang about that today. It brought tears to my eyes, and it always does. When you think of how much Jesus went through for us, he loves us, absolutely adores you. That's what he thinks. (laughs) This is how much he values and will provide How lovely and beautiful grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This is clearly a picture of the great banquet feast that we see in Isaiah 25 where he has this abundant provision. Look at Isaiah 4, verse 2. It's just one verse that uh, speaks of this. Isaiah 4, verse 2 uses the same phrase on that day. He says, on that day, the end of time, the branch, we saw how in Zechariah, the branch is a reference to Messiah. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors, the remnant. That fruit of the land, look at what kind of fruit. Look at Amos 9, 13. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, if you're remembering your 12 minor prophets. So... Amos 9, 13, he says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Now, you know that's 
impossible, right? <laughs> but it's, it's using this, uh, this language to show just how incredible the, the harvest will be, where the plowman is, will overtake the reaper, and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine, and all the hills will flow with it. Here we see abundance of both material and spiritual blessing that God has promised us in the end. Now, Jesus comes twice. He brought salvation and deliverance at his first coming, inaugurating the kingdom. And he brings the ultimate kingdom reign at his second coming. We live in between the two comings. There is real victory to be experienced, but we are also still in the middle of a war. We will have deep delights as we dwell on our king and have those experiential contacts with him through the Holy Spirit, but we will also experience hardship and heartache until the king returns. And so he calls us to make Jesus the center of our lives. Will you surrender to the king? He's worth it. He's beautiful. He's perfect. He's wonderful. You get to have rapturous experiences of his presence at times, deliverance and incredible even miracles at times. Will you surrender? to the king. Let's pray.